You're listening to the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. If you're an aged care professional, you can connect with us at the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Facebook group. Otherwise, you can connect with us at our regular page at Prof. Joe Online. You can also visit our website at profjoe.com.au for a collection of all our links. Also, feel free to email us at info at profjoe.com.au. Welcome. Welcome to the Prof Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. In this podcast, our special guest is Professor Lynn Gilbert, who is an infectious diseases physician and a clinical microbiologist and also has a master's degree in bioethics. Lynn is a senior researcher at the Mari Bashir Institute for Emerging Infections and Biosecurity and Health Ethics at the University of Sydney. In this podcast, we'll explore with Lynn how outbreaks have been managed and Lynn's able to draw on her experiences at the two aged care facilities in New South Wales that have been affected, that at Dorothy Henderson Lodge and at Newmarch. Thanks very much, Lynn. It's a pleasure to have you with us for this podcast. I understand that you don't have first-hand experience of the two outbreaks that have occurred in Sydney. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct, Joe. I mean, I have gained a considerable degree of insight into how both of these facilities handled the outbreak based on discussions with people who were involved in the responses at both of them in my role as uh, an expert advisor, but not from first-hand knowledge of exactly what happened. Can you tell me how the first case was identified? It was in that area where, which is close to Ride Hospital, which is where she came back positive. So that generated a bit of a cadenza, as you can imagine, and there and New South Wales Health became involved. And they got the senior manager for infection control in the Northern Sydney local health district in that night, the same evening, to be part of their crisis management team. And then the next day, her former colleague from Westmead, who's now at the Victorian Clinical Excellence Commission running infection control and HAI issues, was brought in to continue that management. And and to me, that was one of the most important things about the whole deal, because first of all, the rest of the staff were very, very anxious, as you can imagine. Some of them didn't turn up to work, and those who did wanted to go home And, you know, there was a lot of anxiety. So it needed an experienced, soothing hand to talk them through it. As it turned out, that day, they realised that there were two of the residents already in hospital quite sick, one of whom had actually died the day before. And she was tested post-mortem and found to be positive. And the other one was also tested that day and also found to be positive. And he subsequently died a few days later. So they realised they had an outbreak. There were three of them at least. So they decided that all the, eventually, over a couple of days, two or three days, they decided all the staff had been in contact. And so they sent them all off into quarantine and brought in agency nurses, and that took a while too. I mean, this is, it was a very difficult time, as you can imagine. You know, this is a nursing home, not medium to high care uh, facility. So it was a very difficult task. They gradually got agency nurses in, but not enough for several days. 
But they clearly managed all right. They closed the place down. In fact, all of the Baptist care facilities were closed to visitors, which was possibly a bit of an overkill, but obviously they were very nervous about this. So they closed the facility. They confi- The residents were all confined to their rooms and the staff had to beef up their infection control practices. So I think that the infection control professional who came in and sort of ran the show for a few days was one of the most important things they did. I mean, the other important thing they did was to stay very much in touch with the relatives and kept them on side. They spoke to the media quite openly. Initial period, there were several other residents who became positive, but they'd all obviously been infected before any of this was recognised. So there was a a fairly big cluster within the first couple of weeks. There was probably a little bit of additional transmission in that first few days when things were pretty chaotic. But by and large, they brought it under pretty good control until about three weeks later when they had another little cluster. And I think there'd been a breakdown of infection control at some point there too. But, you know, in a way that was not surprising because they had a lot of difficulty getting enough agency staff And, of course, the residents were becoming very restless at being confined to their room. You can't actually physically lock them in. I mean, they allowed the doors to be open so they could sort of see out at least. And some of them who did come out were very resistant to going back into their rooms too. And, of course, agency staff aren't used to handling them. The carers who were off in quarantine would have been much better probably at managing that because they were used to them and the residents knew them. It would have been really very disorienting for anyone who was just a little bit demented, let alone severely so. What would be your thoughts about, do you keep the people who have the infection in the facility and move the ones that don't? Because the general approach has been everyone stays in the facility. It's difficult, isn't it? Because it wasn't really discussed in either of the two that I was involved in until later and there were, you know, there were two possibilities. I guess that the IV physician and I who had been involved in teleconferences about Newmarch were pretty resistant to that on the grounds that you'd just be moving infection into another place and with the potential for more problems. But also, I guess, when there was so much trouble getting staff, it would have meant another facility, depending on what was available, a private hospital willing to take some of the residents from Dorothy Henderson Lodge, but they didn't have staff. So DHL would have had to provide the staff and that would have pleated the the staff where they were. And similar sort of issues at Newmarch was where they could go, where the staff would be sufficiently well-trained to look after them properly and not spread it to anyone else. We were just concerned that a private hospital whose main business is elective surgery, just wouldn't have the infection control skills to manage the infected patients and wouldn't have the geriatric skills to manage elderly people who weren't sick. I mean, it just didn't seem to be any other facilities that had the right mix of physical facilities and staff. And the residents themselves were very reluctant to move as well. What happened in Newmarch was that they had spare rooms and they cleaned out quite a few of the rooms and were able to move some of them around within the facilities so that they could cohort them better. 
And that seemed to have worked quite well, although even then some of the residents were a bit resistant because they, you know, not surprisingly, they wanted all their possession moved as well, which was a big job. It was only a handful of people. So, you know, it's pretty hard moving people out of their homes (laughs) to somewhere else, particularly if they're not sick and, you know, already a bit disoriented and they would have had to remain in quarantine. So do you have much of a sense of the people or the residents who didn't have an infection? Were they keen to stay or were they anxious to leave? Certainly there were relatives who were very keen for their mother or father or whoever to be moved out, but the resident themselves said, no, they didn't want to go. You know, I think there's a a lot of variation. I'm, I'm not aware that any or many at least of the residents were agitating to go themselves. I think it was partly the management thought it might be easier and they explored it and partly the relatives wanted it. But I had the sense that most of the residents themselves were quite happy to stay there. If we're looking at an aged care advocacy viewpoint, they're often advocating for the person to remain in place but the remaining in place doesn't take into consideration the other residents who are now exposed to a potential infection and they may not want to. In my entire career, this is probably the most complex situation that I've ever seen. Yeah. Now, look, it is incredibly complex. You see, at DHL, most of the initial cases were in one of four wings. Well, I think that the woman that was actually in hospital right at the beginning was it had come from another wing. And you can't be sure who's been exposed and infected. You know, with a, an incubation period of anything up to two weeks, you've got that period where if you say, well, we'll move out all the negatives, but some of those may be actually infected and will become ill. So you, if you're going to move them out, you've got to move them out into separate spaces where they can be quarantined. And that's pretty complex. At Newmarch, it was quite successful to have tried to move them within the facility so that they've got all of the positives together and then can then cohort the staff and that's been quite good so that you know the staff only work in one wing and they look after a group of residents who are either all positive or all negative. I think it's very hard to know I think we've been very lucky in Australia some of the conversations we've had with managers and staff suggest space so a place to don off your gear where to dispose of it having clean and dirty areas, access to hand-washing basins is particularly difficult in aged care because of that home-like environment. Is that what played out or...? Oh, no, I think that's true, yes. There's certainly no hand basins in any communal areas. Obviously, they can have uh, alcohol-based hand rub, but they wouldn't normally have uh, and use that. But donning and doffing PPE before they go into a residence room, for example, they have to be in the corridor. And, you know, that's not easy to do. You've got to set up places where the PPE is stored and so on, which would clutter up the corridors, rather. Of the people that have mild illness and you can attain good symptom control as you might do with someone at home, and then there's a group who are dying and, you know, the argument has always been it's better to die in a place that you know with people that you know if they can control your symptoms. The middle group that have moderate illness who may benefit from hospital transfer, 
Did you see many being transferred to hospital for ongoing care or was that substitution? In my mind, the, the aged care facilities being asked to act as, in a sense, hotel accommodation for one group, a quarantine for the well, acute hospital for the middle group and a palliative care hospice type, which is a huge ask of any service. Yeah. Look, again, it varied between them. At DHL, initially for everyone who was infected, they were admitted to hospital more or less automatically. But it soon became apparent that that was not necessarily appropriate and so they were admitted for medical reasons. You know, I think it was that the decisions were made based on their previous condition and their acute symptoms and some of them went to hospital and came back, recovered and came back. And, and some went to hospital and died there. But later on, I think they decided that if there was an aged care directive that said no active treatment, they would not transfer them to hospital and they were palliated at the facility. But, you know, a difficult situation because they weren't allowing relatives in at that stage, although they talked about that. And I, I think with a bit more confidence, fortunately it sort of stopped by the time they got around to it. But I think they might have been able to cope with letting relatives, you know, one or two at least, in to see their relative as they were dying, if that, that were possible. But I don't know that anybody actually did that. So I think the decisions were being made on an individual basis, not based on any blanket rule. I mean, I think there's not a lot of point in admitting someone to hospital if they're 95 and they've said they don't really want any active treatment, even though it does put an extra stress on the staff and it's hard for the residents, but they wouldn't be able to see them if they're in hospital anyway. No, I think this is where the competing interest or the dilemma really sits about is our priority to the person with the infection or is the priority to the people that don't have the infection? This is one of the problems within infection control in general that a lot of hospital doctors don't think at all about the other patients and don't, you know, don't worry about the consequences for the organisation of inappropriate prescription of antibiotics or their own lack of infection control practice and all that sort of thing. And I think we've got to start realising that we're all part of a community. One has to do one's best to, to sort of work out how you can protect everyone as best you can. And, you know, often the only way to do it is to keep everyone separate from each other, both infected and non-infected, particularly in that relatively hothouse sort of enclosed situation of a nursing home, which does mean that uninfected people suffer, that's true, but at least it protects them from getting infected. But unfortunately, it also means that they miss out on the normal day-to-day activities that probably keep them alive, you know, and if they're deprived of those for any length of time, both company and physical exercise, it's really very bad for them. It is a really, I guess, miserable situation to be in. One of the other questions I wanted to raise with you, Lynn, is do you have any insights into what's likely to happen if the community infection rate was higher than than what we're currently seeing, that if we were to have you know, 10 times the number of community-based cases, what do you think the prospect is for nursing homes to contain or not have an outbreak? Well, I think it's going to be harder. I mean, you know, the staff are obviously part of the community. So you can't entirely keep 
infected staff out of facilities like this, which means that the only way you can really reduce the risk, I think, is to improve infection control once they're in there. And I mean, we haven't at this stage, because there's been so little in the community, recommended that they should be wearing masks at work all day, every day, if there's no cases. The mask situation is not bad at the moment, but we certainly don't want to use them unnecessarily while there are so few cases in the community. But if it increases, I think we'll have to review that. Just in closing then, Lynn, do you have three pearls of wisdom that you'd like to impart from what you've learned over your career and particularly having looked at the last two outbreaks for aged care managers and staff? I really think that every aged care facility needs at least a consultant infection control professional to give advice and staff training and the staff should be trained not just a bit of sort of one session when they start work about hand hygiene but an actual sort of discussion-based training where they understand what they're doing and why and that that happens at regular intervals and you know obviously if you're going to employ someone as a consultant to do that it costs money but certainly when there's a hint of an outbreak I think that would be absolutely essential is to include amongst the outbreak management team, which I assume they all sort of would put together as to exactly how they're going to cope, is to have an infection control professional and preferably a medical person, geriatrician or GP or ID physician who can oversee the management because I don't think in an outbreak you're going to have everyone's individual GPs coming in and looking after them. All right, Lynn, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thanks, bye. Thank you very much.